It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, welcome back to another session here in the book of Ephesians. Now, I don't know about you, but this has been a rich study in my life, even though we haven't even got that far. Now, I want to just start with reading our passage just so it's fresh in our mind. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In the last session, we looked at this idea of what Paul is saying in terms of he's a prisoner in the Lord. And really, he's talking about his own identity. He's saying that he's a prisoner, not just of the Lord, he's a prisoner in the Lord. Yeah, he's in, you know, he's in Rome and he's in probably in house arrest in some version of chains. But the reality is he's not just merely a prisoner of Rome. Paul is associating his identity and the ownership of his life with God Almighty. He says that he is owned and operated and controlled by God himself, that he's a prisoner in the Lord. That is his identity. Well, I've been pondering that idea over this last week, and I really just wanted to expand on it. It's just been such a deep thought and just a personal conviction in my own heart that I thought it'd be wise or even just helpful for all of us to give one more session looking at this idea of what is Paul saying when he talks about the fact that he's a prisoner in the Lord. That word Lord, it's really interesting. It's the word kurios. And it is, in a basic definition, it is the person to whom a thing or a person belongs to. It's about which he has a power of deciding, often translated master or Lord, but it's the possessor and dispossessor of a person or a thing. Uh, For example, throughout the Roman culture, Caesar was often given the title as Lord, that he was, in the mind of Rome, he was this savior the Lord and the God of the Roman Empire. It's interesting to me that Paul uses those same phrases to talk about Jesus, that Jesus is the true Savior of the world, that he is the true one and only God, and that he is the Lord. And again, it's just, it's a title that expresses respect and reverence. It's this idea, uh, or it would be the way in which a servant would greet his master. So if a servant or a slave came into the house, he would often say, you know, hey, sir or Lord, that you're my master. Think about this. Every time we call God our Lord, we are inferring that we are his slaves. Now, I know that this is not a very popular thought in today's culture. In fact, it seems like the whole movement of the culture is kind of saying, well, let's downplay this idea of slave language. In other words, we don't want to be associated with what we may have said or done in the past. But the reality is, is scripturally, we are slaves of the Lord. In fact, it's interesting that 717 times in the New Testament, that word kurios is used. Now, sometimes it's referred to other people, but oftentimes it is talking about Jesus, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. That in other words, he is this, he's in a position of being the master and the ruler, the one who controls all things. So when I call Jesus my Lord, in essence, what I'm doing is I'm putting myself in a position under his authority and saying, you, O Lord, are my master. You, O Lord, are the one who controls my life. And thereby, I am your servant. I am your slave. That same term, when you look at the Greek in the Old Testament, 
The word kurios is used over 7,000 times. In fact, it's one of the main ways that God is referred to in the Old Testament, that he is our Lord, that he is our master. Isn't that an interesting thought? I, I once heard a good friend and scholar who just mentioned this idea that in the New Testament, the term that is most often used to describe Christians is not Christian. It's not even a son. The term that is most used is a slave. Isn't that just awkward? That is like so painful. And I think the reason we don't like that is it seems like there's a tension in Scripture itself. And in other words, you could easily turn to a passage, for example, John 15, verse 15, and say, well, well, didn't Jesus say this? No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. Or, or what about Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, where Paul says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, there seems like a tension, isn't there? That, all right, if I call God my Lord, if Jesus truly is Lord of my life, well, then the inference of that is, well, I must be his servant or his slave. And yet, didn't Jesus himself call me his friend? Doesn't Paul say that we are sons of the King of Kings? Yes. And actually, all of that is true. If I merely see myself as a son or a daughter of the king, or if I merely see myself as a friend of God and I don't actually see myself under his authority, well, I've missed an aspect of the gospel. And it is just as true that if I only see myself as a servant or a slave and I forget the intimate connection and relationship that I have with God, the fact that I am his son, well, then I've also missed a huge aspect of the gospel. It's interesting to think about the fact that I have relationship, I have been brought near, that I am a friend of God, that, that I am in this position of sonship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And yet as King and as Lord, I am also his servant, that he is master of my life. So there's this interesting tension in scripture that we must, we must keep in mind. But again, I find it fascinating that the term that is most used in the New Testament for whom a believer is or what a believer is called is actually that of a servant, or maybe even a better term of that is actually a slave. I want to give you just a kind of a quick story, which is uh, a question that I often get asked by some of our students. And it's this idea of like, uh, I've noticed on your wrist, there seems to be a tattoo. <laughs> and, and there is. Uh, about, it's almost 20 years ago now. I had the opportunity to travel with an evangelist, and it was probably the most life-changing experience of my entire life. God turned my world upside down. And it was interesting, one of the first things this evangelist said to his three interns is he looked at us and he said, look, this whole summer, I want you to be a servant to the people around you. I don't want you to think about yourself. I don't want to think about your priorities. I don't want you to think about how does this affect me? I want you to keep your gaze upon Jesus Christ. And I want you to pour your life out for the people around you. In essence, you are to be a slave to those around you. Well, when you hear that, that's kind of, that is uncomfortable. I, I, I want to think about me. I, I want to think about my, you know, my pleasure and, and my comfort and my whatever. 
But the reality is what he was pointing at is Paul so many times in his, in his epistles say, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. And you realize that a slave does not get to choose when he wakes up, when he goes to bed, his duties for the day. He merely obeys the voice of his master. And so this evangelist, this great friend and mentor of mine said, I, I want you to have that attitude this summer. This summer is not about you. This summer is about Jesus Christ. So would you keep your gaze upon the Lord and just pour your life out? Well, all throughout that summer, <laughs> we were just bleeding, suffering, and dying for Jesus Christ. And one of the key things that God taught me that summer was this really isn't about me. This is all about how can I serve and meet the needs of those around me? That if the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords came to earth and what he did was he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my, my life as a ransom for many. If he was walking around constantly rolling up his sleeves saying, hey, how, how can I serve you? How can I meet your needs? Hey, how can I pour my life out for you? Well, shouldn't we do the same thing? if we are filled with his very presence and his life through the indwelling Holy Spirit, that if the king who came not to be served, but to serve lives inside of our lives, shouldn't, shouldn't we also offer our lives as a living sacrifice and allow him to do whatever he desires in and through our lives? Well, at the end of that summer, that was such a profound uh, reality in my life. And it was radically shifting how I think about all things. Well, over the course of the next couple of months, I was just pondering that idea of, okay, I'm a servant and I'm to serve and pour my life out. And Jesus, would you, would you use this life? Would you use this vessel as, as, as a means through which you can showcase your life, your glory and your gospel through that? It's not about me. It is all about Jesus. Well, I was thinking that through and I says, you know what? This is not just a, a summer decision. This isn't just something I want to, to live for a, a season of my life and go about and do something else. Rather, I want this to be the attitude and the tone of my life for the rest of my life. Well, I was pondering, well, what could I do that would just impact and deeply symbolize for me that it's a forever decision? And I remember there's a passage back in Exodus that talked about what would, what would a servant do or what would a slave do if he found a good master and he wanted to give himself to lifelong slavery? In other words, here is a slave. He's been freed. And yet he realizes that it is far better to be a doorkeeper in the house of his master than it is just to go and do his own life. So he sells himself as a slave to this good master. Well, here's what the passage in Exodus says in Exodus 21, verse five and six. It says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God then he shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently. So here was the idea in the Hebrew culture that if a slave was going to sell himself to the master, he would take his ear, go to the doorpost and they would take a little awl, like a, you know, a nail, a tent peg kind of a thing. And they would drive it through the ear, typically the right ear. Now the whole idea was, is that, Forevermore, this ear belongs to one person, the master, that I have an ear for my master and I will not listen to any other voice, but my master. Well, as I was pondering this idea, I realized that getting a gauged ear <laughs> would probably be really distracting. And so I said, well, what else is permanent? What else, 
would, would actually have this declaration for my own soul. Now, for clarity's sake, I'm not a huge fan of tattoos. I, in fact, I don't, for the most part, support a lot of tattoo stuff. However, for me, it was so symbolic of if I had a tattoo, I just can't erase it. I can't decide when to wear it and when not to wear it, that this is a forever decision. And so on my wrist, I got a little Greek tattoo that says doulos, which is that word in the Greek for slave, that I was making a declaration to my own soul saying, God, I am your servant. Whatever you say goes, you, O Lord, are my Lord and master. Do you realize that Paul was saying that very same thing? That he's, as he's entering in a chapter four of Ephesians, he's saying, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. That, that yeah, I may be a prisoner of Rome. Yes, I may be in chains. But the reality is, is Rome has nothing on me. I am a prisoner of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in other epistles, he uses the specific language of a slave. That I'm not even just a prisoner. I am a slave of the king. Well, that idea is very similar to this idea of a shepherd. I find it interesting that there's a lot of similarities between God being Lord and God being our good shepherd. Now, I know you know several of these passages, but let me just read them so they're fresh in our minds. Psalm 100 says this, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. So the writer of the psalm is saying, do you not realize that God is our shepherd and we are are his sheep. Now, I'm not a shepherd, but from what I've been told, sheep are, well, rather dumb, <laughs> which maybe that is a good comparison to people. The reality is, is sheep need a shepherd. Uh, when you look at all the animals in the animal kingdom, isn't it interesting that most animals can live wild somewhere, but that's not true for sheep. Sheep demand a shepherd. You won't see a wild flock of sheep anywhere. Why? Because they'll die. <laughs> they are so dependent on the shepherd for life. That is true also for the Christian. That the Christian life was not made to live on your own. The Christian life was not made just to live independent and doing woo, good things for God. The reality is, is we as believers must abide and be dependent upon our good shepherd. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 10. Jesus is talking and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own knows me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is not merely a shepherd. He is a superlative shepherd. That word superlative just means great or amazing, over the top. It's, it's, a, it's a descriptive term that is that elevates whatever it is that it's describing. In other words, he's not just a shepherd. He is a shepherd, but not just a shepherd. He is a good shepherd. He is a great shepherd. He is the ultimate shepherd. And as such, he will lay down his life for his sheep. So really, it begs a question. 
Will I trust him and his goodness no matter where he leads? We're talking about this idea of calling in the beginning part of chapter four. And if you are going to embrace and grab a hold of this idea of calling, you've got to know who your God is. You've got to realize that he truly is our Lord, that he is a good shepherd. As such, am I willing to follow him? Am I willing to trust him? Am I willing to keep my gaze upon him and put my faith in him regardless where he leads? Paul says, I am a prisoner in the Lord, that I am his servant. And whatever he wants to do with my life, Paul says, I am in. If that means I'm in in a Roman house arrest or a prison cell, so be it. If that means I'm doing well and I have total freedom, so be it. My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price, says Paul. So I'm going to glorify God with my life. Let me read you a really familiar passage. In fact, my guess is you probably even have this memorized. But I want you to hear it afresh in light of the fact that God is our Lord and he is our shepherd. And as such, am I willing to follow him regardless where he leads? So this is Psalm 23. Listen to what David writes. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you hear what David is writing in that psalm? David, as a shepherd, is looking at God and saying, Lord, you are my shepherd. That just as my sheep trust me, just as my sheep are dependent upon my, my provision and my resource and me leading them to, to pools of quiet water and to grassy fields. And in fact, regardless of where I lead them, even through a valley of shadow of death, they trust me. So to God, I trust you. Can you say that with God? Can, can you look at God and say, Lord, I, I, I trust you as my good shepherd. That wherever you lead, whether it is a grassy meadow, whether it is quiet waters, or whether, whether it's even a shadow, a valley of shadow of death, I won't have to fear. I can trust you. I will keep my gaze upon you and put my hope and faith in you because I know who you are. Can you say that? Because unless you can actually come to that point of fully trusting in your God, you will never be able to fully embrace your calling. Because you cannot look at God and say, all right, I, I want to know my calling. I, what is your calling for my life? But it has, it has to have these parameters. See, we cannot say that to God. If I'm truly going to embrace God's calling for my life, I must be fully surrendered, fully abiding, fully dependent, fully open for him to spill and spin my life however he chooses. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to embrace the God of the universe and trust him wherever he leads? Well, let me wrap up by giving this, this idea of three things. There, there are three things that are common between a Lord and a shepherd. It's fascinating to me that 
that when you study this idea of the master or the Lord, and again, specifically, it's coming out of this idea of Ephesians 4.1, where Paul says, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. Well, when you look at this idea of the master or the Lord in the Roman culture, legally, every master was required to give three things to his servants. So even a bad master, even, even the horrible masters were required by law to do three things for their servants and slaves. Here they are. Number one, give protection. Number two, give provision. And number three, give direction. Protection, provision, and direction. In other words, even bad masters in the Roman culture had to provide for their slaves. They had to protect their slaves and they had to give direction. In other words, give things to do to their slaves. When I heard that, it was really startling because I realized those are the same three things that a good shepherd does. Well, even a bad shepherd will do those things. If a shepherd is caring for his flock and he wants his flock to survive, well, he's going to have to protect the flock, provide for the flock, and give direction to his flock. Think about this. Our God isn't merely a bad master. He is not a just a simple shepherd. In reality, he is the best master and he is a great shepherd. So even if the bad ones will give protection, provision, and direction to their servants or to their sheep, how much more will a good master or a good shepherd give to the slave or the sheep? Just as a fun side note, do you realize that most of the times when we pray, we're asking God for one of those three things? God, I need protection. God, I need provision. Oh God, I need direction. What is your will? What if I could trust God and say, Lord, you are a good master. You are a great shepherd. So Lord, I know that you are going to get protection and provision and direction in my life. That yes, though I may ask you of those things, I know that you're just going to do that. As a good father, you're just going to provide those. Can I trust my God? Again, in the context of this idea of calling, which we're going to get into in the next study, I need to know who my God is. I need to know that he is a good master and a great shepherd. Otherwise, I won't trust him. What if God calls you into a difficult place? What if he calls you into something that you're like, I I'm not so sure I'm, I'm fit for this. But if I know who my master is, if I know who God is, well, then am I willing to trust him? Can I encourage you? Trust in your God. And the only way you are going to be able to trust your God is that you're going to have to get to know your God. Not just academically, not factually. You are going to have to embrace the reality of who God is. You should be getting into the word to know who our great God and Savior is. And here's what I found. The more I get to know who he is, the more I trust him. The more I can keep my gaze upon him, the more I have faith in him and the more hope it produces in my life. You have a calling in your life, but you first and foremost need to know the one to whom has given you that calling. Will you trust him? And just even in that light, let me pray a prayer that God would just become real and evident in all of our lives. So pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are our Lord, that you are the master of our lives. 
And Lord, I pray that you would just give us a fresh revelation of the fact that if you are Lord, then we are your servants, that you are a great shepherd and we are the sheep of your pasture and we can trust you, whether we are sitting beside quiet waters or in lush meadows or whether we are following you through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, I just pray that you would give us a clear mind and a clear heart to know you. And Lord, I just ask that as we understand and, and begin to walk in this idea of what is our calling, Lord, I pray first and foremost that we wouldn't get lost in the calling. Rather, we would get lost in the one who has called us. And so, Lord, Lord, we just thank you for what you've been doing and thank you that we don't have to have everything figured out, but we can trust you as our good Lord and master. We love you. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.